Individuals Happy Monday, everybody. How you doing? Happy Monday. Welcome, Yoav. Joe, where are you? Let's uh, give some context to the background noise here. I'm just in the Salt Lake City Airport. Don't worry about it. It's my home away from home. Yeah. So, <laughs> we're here every week. So, yeah. How you doing, Yoav? Good to see you. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Happy Monday. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Happy Monday. It's Monday evening there. Or noon, but, yeah, it's um, about 5 p.m. now. So uh, we are in, uh, we just got out of daylight savings. So it's standard time. So it's getting dark a bit outside. Mm. Want to introduce yourself a bit? Uh, yeah, tell us about what you've been up to for the last several years. I, I, that's good context to start the conversation here. Yeah, for sure. Sure, definitely. So hey, everyone, my name is Yoav Cohen. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Satori. Uh, what we do is we help uh, companies streamline access to their data by you know, promoting self-service analytics and self-service access to data. Um, I've been working in the data domain for over a decade now, um, back in the days where we didn't have enough um, funds to build our uh, like proper data systems. We have to build them our, our own um came up with all sorts of interesting architectures that we later saw in in kafka and, and other cool data projects um and uh been uh been uh been around software since uh since i was a kid and data in particular databases data warehouses uh data lakes are super interesting for me and uh i think we've seen a an explosion in uh, data stores in the past, I don't know, seven years, like things have really shifted gears uh, from the good old days of just having like one MySQL or one Oracle. So it's been uh, it's been a crazy journey so far. It's been a lot of evolution. Like, how did you get into like, walking into the evolution of your um path into data though because it seems like you mentioned you, you were doing stuff um before there's kind of a i don't know other projects like, what was the uh you don't have a name specific so i think i know what you're talking about but uh, like what um what were some of the uh motivations had building these systems sure and so, the insights too <clears throat> yeah definitely um when um so i think the year was 2011 I just left SAP after five years there working on some like application integration portals and these kind of um, infrastructure things. And I joined a company called Encapsula, which uh, interestingly was located like a few minutes walk that way. Oh, and fine. yeah, and, and, and Encapsula was uh, uh, kind of like a Cloudflare the content delivery network, web application firewall. And we just had enormous data to store, basically all of the web logs of people accessing websites uh, via the Encapsula service. And when I came in, uh, all of those logs were basically stored as rows in tables in a big MySQL um, instance. And obviously that, that became choked up uh, pretty, pretty fast. And so at that time, think about it, that's 2011, early 2011, that's 
I think pre-EC2, or at least we didn't use that, or it was like very early on, um, and no Kafka, no like proper big data systems, and anything that was, let's say, call it proper at that time, was so prohibitively expensive for us as a young company that we just ruled out. So we started building systems to be able to um, store, process, query that data and make sense out of it because we had to build like dashboards for users. We had to build um, data science um, on top of that, like security researchers had to go and review all of these, uh, all of that data to understand where uh, website attacks are coming from and how are they, you know, what's their vector and how to mitigate them and so on. And we started building those those systems from the ground up to, to be able to do all of these things. And we had a couple of evolutions uh, and we used a couple of, couple of different systems. We used MongoDB at some point to be uh, yeah. to get to more scale. And like we had, we had a very write intensive workload. So we were looking for something we could just dump the data and then not necessarily we would read all of the data, but we just needed something that can store the data fast enough. So we, we had a, we had a good stint with MongoDB. Um, at the, but when I left a few years later, we standardized on, um, using Lucene for indexing and querying the data. And then um, all of the, when, whenever like you wanted to see those search results, we would just get them directly from files. Like we'd go random access into those files. We had those pointers into the files. We knew in which file and in which offset the data that we were looking for resides. And then we just go in and, and fetch that. And, um, I don't remember when it was, I think 2013, I gave a conference talk around DC and I think the title was, and goes to credit goes to Eldad, my co-founder, um, from a thousand a day to a thousand, a thousand a second, how we build our big data system. Um, I think nowadays that's more standardized. Like, um, you can get a lot of scale right now with a lot of off the shelf products and cost is, is really good right now. But that was before your Presto and Athena and all of these things that made like lake house and warehousing really, really easy. Yeah, well, in our book, we talk about the death of big data, but it's not because big data has actually disappeared. It's because it's not novel anymore. And back when you were doing it in 2011, 2013, it was really, really hard. Like well, there in 2015, a, it was hard. There, yeah. were there weren't a lot of options back then. I think it's funny because Mongo, I think, was sort of the default for a lot of people for a while. So it's like, oh, you can throw anything in there. It's super easy. Um, that's got its pluses and minuses. But um, yeah. Let me, uh, let me mute real quick the micro-announcements going off here. <laughs> But um, yeah, I guess back to the topic here, like, you know, data security, right? You're talking about um, data systems here. Like, why is it so hard? What, what's so hard about data security? I think data is, uh, securing data is inherently hard because um, data is even more dangerous than cash, if you think about it. Uh, like, yeah, you can, you can go into my house and, and grab some cash and then go and use it. No one would know, right? 
with data, you can you can go in, you can take a snapshot in your phone of my sensitive data. You don't have to actually get uh, that copy of data itself. So I think inherently, like theoretically, like information theory, whatever kind of kind of thing, uh, cosmic thinking, data is super super hard to uh, to protect because um, you can make as many copies of it as you want. Uh, there's nothing inherent about it that creates traceability. You know, if you think about blockchain technology and all of these things that have some traceability, you know, built in, there's no data doesn't have like an underlying system. Um, it's just raw information in different formats that can be copied without any restriction that can be <clears throat> manipulated. <clears throat> you can create forgery with data, right? You can copy the data, you can change it, you can give it to someone else. Hey, here's, uh, here's, uh, here's the real copy of the data, but it's actually fake. So I think it's at the end of the day, it's uh, from a, um, like a first principles perspective, data is super hard to, um, to uh, to manage and it's super hard to to secure and we're constantly being uh, we constantly have to deal with the the implications of of that so you may adopt one data system and it has all of these great controls over um you know role-based access controls and it can have like dynamic masking and role level security and all the features great but someone can still like run a query someone with access run a query and they can like take a screenshot or a snapshot with their phone and then send it somewhere else like th think think snowden if snowden was able to get all the data that he got data is inherently unsafe and securing data really relies on people uh to behave nicely tell me about it. let's go back to the discussion of big data in their early days in your previous previous roles um what kinds of security challenges did you have there with managing these logs i'm guessing that will feed right into how you got into the running a security company for sure yeah so that data was um pretty sensitive data because think about um people going online to their websites, could be dating websites, could be other things, whatever. And then, you know, clicking around, all of those interactions at the end of the day get stored somewhere. They're, they're being recorded, they get stored somewhere for different purposes. Obviously it's all for the, you know, for the purpose of delivering the service, for the purpose of, you know, understanding, uh, identifying new attacks um, and, and, and so on. But, uh, that data still has to be um, collected, stored, and then analyzed by uh, individuals, by people, and by machines um, to to make sense out of it. And it's uh, it's highly sensitive. Like you can go in and see the people I'm interested in dating on the dating website, or maybe I have secrets. Or uh, you know, when we started the company, the, the one of the one of the examples I used to give is like um, a writing app, like an Uber or something like that. Um, like I tell my wife, I go every Tuesday morning, I go to the gym, but then the app sits differently. And Jesse how is Barbara? the data in the app is, is uh, protected. completely hypothetical, by the way. Uh, but interestingly, 
the first customer we had for the company, which was like a complete inbound customer, uh, is a writing app. So there you go. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. So, uh, and now you just want to make sure that there's no way around giving people access to that data because you have a business to run. You have obligations to your customers to identify new website attacks, to come up with better algorithms, to reduce costs for their rides, and so on and so on. So the data must be used. I think that's something we can all agree on. Uh, we can also agree that people as a whole should be trusted, can be trusted, but there are exceptions. Like a uh, true story, I, I met a CISO of a very large financial services company a few years back. And that person told me <clears throat> they uncovered uh, some attempt of, uh, of uh, I don't know, you know the best way to call them, like criminals, I guess, that offered $50,000 to their employees to exfiltrate some data out of that company. Interesting. Yeah. So you know, for some people, that's a lot of money. And that's something that people, you know, will consider doing. Now, obviously, if those people knew there are no consequences to doing that, uh, so they're just left with their morality to, uh, to be the judge of that situation. However, like if they're compromised, if they have like a gambling debt or I don't know, some problem or whatever, and they really need the cash, um, they can be tempted to go and do, um, um, I would say, stupid things. And so that's where the human element come, comes in play. And um, I think one of the effective ways of, of reducing that risk, which exists in all of the companies that we work with and in all of the people who we, companies we trust our data with, I think one of the, the things to, to do here is to make sure that people know that they're being um, monitored. Um, if, if I work at that company and I get this offer uh, to exfiltrate data for a big sum of money, if I know there are no consequences to my actions, then I may consider it. But if I know there's a good chance of my actions being detected and me getting caught, like $50,000, that's not enough money for, for most people to I don't know, lose their job or, or go to jail or something like that, right? So one of the things we try to do is always uh, make sure um, people know that we know what they do with data and um, we, you want to keep reminding, you want, you want to make the process feel like um, the, the, in a way that creates, like increases the awareness of people using data. It's just, it's not just something you play with as much as you want. Like you have to be responsible. People just need to be reminded to be responsible. Like we have road signs, right? You know, the, you know, the government tells me I have to drive a certain speed or I have to stop here and I have to, uh, I have to act a certain responsible way when I use the road. We, we want to make sure people behave the same 
uh, when they when they use data. That's interesting. I mean, in the um, in our book, we call out uh, security as one of the undercurrents of what we call the data engineering lifecycle, and and we actually have a standalone chapter for security because we figure if you can get security right, uh, which we'll talk about uh, briefly, but you know a lot of things a lot of things work right, but. You building the fanciest data pipeline and um, storage system in the world isn't really going to help you if, if you are breached. If you have a security issue, nothing matters. Like you lose your job probably at a minimum. Your company uh, doesn't look great. Uh, they probably have to pay a lot of money, and it's just it's it's just a really bad um, thing to have happen. So, but it's interesting. I mean, because we call it security because it's one of those things where we try and think that it's. Um, you know, hackers infiltrating stuff. But as you point out, it's, it's typically somebody doing stupid things, either consciously or unconsciously. Like, you know, we're not too far from Las Vegas, the MGM Grand. I mean, that whole casino got hacked. And how did they get hacked? From what I read, an, an English-speaking hacker group just simply just called customer service and tried to pose as IT. And I think within 15 minutes, they were able to get the credentials. And they brought down, I think, I think MGM had to... Uh, uh, have a hundred million dollar expense or something like that due to this hack, and that shut down the casino. By the way, not just their data warehouse, but like the whole damn thing. You couldn't wow. get into your hotel. You couldn't like you couldn't use any. You couldn't go to the slots. Sucks. Um, so it's like everything broke, and it, it didn't take that long. It didn't take that long at all. And it wasn't some some hacker with like a you know the, the matrix flowing down the screen like they like they do in the hacker movies. It's just somebody just made a simple phone call, and by that. Couple steps later, done. Toast. Yep. Yep. So, I guess it just goes to show, as you point out, the human, the human in the loop is the hard part, right? So, like, if you're aware of things going on, then definitely helps. Um, and, and to your point, Joe, I, I think a lot of it. One of the things we talk about is the issue with checkbox compliance. So, what I mean by checkbox compliance is that in the SOC two world. And, and stock two has its value, right? But in the stock two world, you kind of make a list of things you're going to do to comply with security. And you'll say things like, oh, we're going to block port 22 outbound so people can't push data over SSH. It's like, okay, great. But what about all the attacks that um, are very hard to, to stop? So for example, people can just push data to S3 over HTTP. And you can't really stop that because you can't block HTTP for your entire company. And that's where you have to think in terms of like more dynamic approaches to security as opposed to saying, here are just static rules. How do we use surveillance to make sure to watch for potential attacks and then respond if something looks weird or out of place? And I think that's what you're talking about as well. It's just like active surveillance, monitoring what's going on with security. And then if something looks out of place, then investigate further, but quickly before a lot of damage is done. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, you know, security, I just, as my previous call was with the CISO, one of our customers, and, you know, that person has a, a big list of, of, of activities uh, he wants to get done this year. It's, it's really never ending. Um, and, uh, but I do think that some, in some areas, it's getting better because tooling is a lot more mature. Like the, the domain that um, we came from, which is the web application firewall domain, like 10, 15 years ago was a big hassle. Like uh, to get a WAF up and running, you had to go through, jump through all these hoops, maybe get a, get a box deployed in your data center. Nowadays, you go into Imperva or a Cloudflare or Fast or whatever, 
you just you know check a box and you get like a pretty decent pretty decent WAF and you don't have to worry about it. Um, same goes with like endpoint protection and a lot of a lot of domains in security have really have really matured. There is always going to be a, a more sophisticated hacker, uh, someone who can exploit um, something that has yet to be addressed by you know by by the software vendor or whatever but to a large extent from an operator perspective that problem is largely solved like you can get a, a, a good endpoint protection you can get a good WAF, you can get a good ddos protection so there are some attack vectors and security domains which are largely solved i think data security is still very immature we still talk about things like um, role-based access controls and permissions. Um, that's an area where I think there's a lot of opportunity, and that's why we're, you know, operating, operating in in that field. You know, coupled with the fact data is very liquid, it's very dynamic. Um, it's uh, creates a really interesting challenge. You, you talked about th that great data pipeline, uh, and security be, being this undercurrent um i i wish and i work to make security like an undercurrent completely orthogonal to data engineering however what i see now is i see it's i see it's still very much coupled meaning um there's in there's a requirement for a new data set to be created um so th that task goes into the data engineering team they need to figure out um you know whether sensitive data should be included there or not um maybe under what conditions um maybe we want to create one data set without sensitive data um and one data set with the sensitive data in case someone needs it there's a problem here that data engineering in today's world kind of needs to anticipate all of the different um, future requirements and um, access patterns for the data that they're creating otherwise they'll just need to like create and create and create more and more and more data so i think security is still very much coupled in in data engineering and my belief is that security needs to de being decoupled or become like this mm -hmm. undercurrent that takes care of itself like like i don't have to take care of endpoint protection i have to operate the solution obviously but um, I don't have to like think about it every time I deploy a new device in my company. I know there's like in some um, um, some swim lane, some environment, some guardrails in place that would take care of that. Can I get to a question here? Um, uh, let's see, Dan Everett, he asks. Uh, how do you manage the trade-off between security and data utility? Uh, specifically, things like masking and tokenization reduce the usability of data for analytics and AI. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. So, from my experience, the way uh, we and our customers approach this is we highly rely on dynamic masking as as a way to um, to secure data without um, compromising on the data utility and the the masking is typically done in in a way that can be turned on and off per user per use case so if i like go into what a, a user would experience 
with our solution, they would go into this portal and would say, I want to use this data set and I don't need any sensitive data. So I'm clicking here, please give me access to this. Um, and they can start using the data right away. But then, uh, and then they get like sensitive data math. But then they might say, oh, I actually need some of the sensitive data here. So let me go back to this portal. I want to click on uh, this data set. I need access to, yes, I do need access to sensitive data. And I provide my reason that goes maybe to someone to approve, um, depending on you know the rules that the company decided uh, to, to provision. Um, and that way, that person can go and immediately query the data and see the sensitive data. But uh, a few things, a few interesting things happen in the process. First of all, they need to provide their business reason, right? Um, this is why I'm doing this. Uh, there's a reason. There's a Jira ticket. There's a customer support ticket. There's a project, whatever. There's an approval. Um, someone, you know, can 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 provide checks and balances on that request. Someone may say, "Well, I didn't know you're working on this project. Can you give me some more information?" Okay, that's great. I'm going to approve. Or hey, go talk to your manager, whatever. And for the all of these um, controls, the person who is um, requesting the access, they're completely aware that there's a process. And someone is paying attention to what they do with data, which brings me to my early, earlier comment about is, is, is it really worth it for me to go and abuse the trust that the company uh, gave me to use this data? Mm, not sure. Yeah, I, I think. The, the oh, sorry, I have to. Uh, I have to go board my plane right now. So um, yeah, but, have a good so, flight, Joe. Yeah, great. Yeah, for part of it. Have a safe flight. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for dialing yeah. in. Yeah, no worries. You know, if you, yeah. Audience, you traded up with Matt as the only host here, so good job. All right. It's going to be very lonely without you, Joe. So we'll we'll talk to you. Lonely soon. without you too. All right. Okay. Um, uh, one thing I like to talk about is that we need to start thinking of security as an enabler of data utilization. And I totally get Dan's point. Like every data scientist has dealt with this issue where they get data that's been scrubbed in such a way that they can't do what they want with it. That that totally happens. It becomes It can become much harder to do analytics on data if you've anonymized it. But at the same time, I've been in many situations where because there weren't adequate security controls on data, you couldn't use it at all. So for example, I worked with one company that was setting up Presto because uh, Hive wasn't really scaling anymore, but then they couldn't get the open source version of Presto to integrate with the security controls. And so as a result, only people with like the very top level of data access, of sensitive data access permissions were allowed to use it. And so it was basically a useless solution because there was no security control on it. And I think the same thing kind of happened with data lakes where in the early days, no one cared. It's just like, oh, whatever, you know, be careful. Don't be careful with people's privacy, but really we don't care that much. No one's watching what you're doing. And then eventually GDPR came along, CCPA came along, companies became very aware of the liabilities of handling private data. And suddenly all that data like data almost became unusable without some extra processes to actually lock it down and secure it and make sure that people's privacy was respected. Yeah, totally. Um, we didn't call it the data lake back then, but that's basically what we created in my previous company in the early days because we just funneled everything into storage 
and then we would somehow index it and query it directly. Um, <clears throat> like we didn't have any curation process. And like, that's the big promise of, of a data lake, right? You don't have to curate the data, just put everything in and then use it because we have uh, enough scale coming from, from cloud resources. Um, I think universality when, when, so there's no way around this, honestly, I wish, I wish I had like better news, um, because as the data engineering team, you want to make tool selection largely based on, um, you know, things like functionality, cost, scale, and so on. And security often becomes a, a backseat, especially for new projects like migrations, data modernization, and so on. I've seen it in many, many uh, data projects I've been involved in in the past few years where we just need to find a way how to get the data from our on-prem hundreds of databases into this new cloud-based service, which we purchased. Uh, that that in itself is such, such a big lift. Then once the data is that we'll take about, we'll worry about security later. We just cannot, you know, feed that in, in our brains when we try to funnel all this data and move it to the cloud. Uh, and that's why I advocate for any like data security tool should have what we call universality, um, being able to not just have, not just be a point solution to let's say a snowflake. That's very popular right now because Snowflake really built awesome data governance features in the past two, three years. <clears throat> so there are many solutions, many companies providing a solution for Snowflake. But what happens for most companies when they still have those 100, 200 SQL Server on-prem databases that are still being used and needs to need to be accessed? What happens if I have Snowflake for one type of workload and then I, I bought Databricks for something else? So you want something that is universal, that supports enough of the technologies that you use today and can evolve into supporting the technologies you use, you will use in, in the future. And um, there's another important concept to consider here, which uh, I borrow from Gartner and they call it late binding controls. So you really want to use as, as many late binding controls versus early binding controls as possible. So like dynamic masking, that's a late binding control because it's being um, activated at the point of access. At the point of access, you have the most information about um, the user, the type of data they're accessing, the purpose they're you know operating under, and so on. Um, you have all the information to make a really um, ad hoc and fine-grained policy decision versus something that's early binding like um, encryption or tokenization or static masking where you just transform the data before you put it in the database and um, you know you just do it without any context and then it forces you to create all these copies of the data right? You create one copy of the data set that is encrypted or masked, and then you need to create another copy of the data that is unmasked. And then you need to tell users, go use this copy when you do this and go use this copy when you do that. So Gartner came up with this concept of late binding controls, which I really like. Um, so not just universal universality, you also want to have something that 
um, has late binding controls. And, and the last piece is something that's going to be user friendly. Uh, you know, for crying out loud, um, no one wants to use a clunky security tool um, that, you know, doesn't provide any value. Um, I think those um, security, data security platforms should provide <clears throat> some better tooling. Hey, Matt, um, I have to go for a few okay. minutes because yeah. we have an alarm here. Okay. I'll be back, hopefully. Give me a couple of minutes. Oh, okay, Thanks. okay. Sorry, Sounds folks. good. <laughs> All right, I guess um, I'll continue here for a couple of minutes. I, I want to talk about a couple of things while you uh, was gone and... Uh, so Dan, th thanks for your next comment here, actually. Uh, regarding late binding controls, um, I wanna tie it in actually with this a bit. So th this isn't so much a question as a statement, which I think is very, very relevant. So Dan, you're getting lots of airtime today, but this is what he says. He says, biggest secret in analytics. Marketing says we need data for a campaign next quarter. Legal says not until we establish policies for use. Security says it will take us a few months to implement and validate controls. Yeah, totally get that. Um, <laughs> this is something we've all been there. And I think a lot of these issues come down to maybe organizational issues within companies uh, looking for opportunities to change the way we organize security controls and organize uh, interfaces between different parts of the organization to streamline security. It's not to say that we're trying to remove security fundamentally, but it, it, I, I do think there's an opportunity to make the whole process more efficient. And I think late binding controls can be part of that. Um, in the early days of GDPR, what we saw a lot is uh, when data got to be six months old, companies would simply delete it because they didn't have the process control to make sure that that data was going to satisfy GDPR requirements. And then over time, we uh, started getting more fine grained in how we handled those issues so that we could actually keep data and then just selectively delete the data that was no longer needed. And I think um, those kinds of one-way processes are an issue we still see in a lot of organizations. In other words, if they, if they're concerned about the sensitivity of certain data, they simply delete it or like one way mask it or one way hash it. And then there's no possibility of ever going back to do anything interesting with that data in the future. All right, I've been, I've been, sorry, I've been monologuing for just a second here. Um, glad everything's okay over there for the moment. Yeah, everything's fine. Okay. Uh, phone app that uh, produces a, a scary alarm whenever we have to run into the shoulder. So yeah, all good. Okay. Okay. So the all clear came back really fast this time. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I just read this, this comment. Do you see this comment on my screen from Dan Everett? Um, yep. So one, one thing I was discussing while you were gone is that I think there are opportunities to change the way we think about security organizationally. 
And right now there's so much siloing in terms of how security is handled. And the attitude of a lot of data engineers for this reason, partially, is that security is someone else's problem. Security is something I have to ask someone else about. I don't worry about it personally. I go check with legal and I check with the security department and I check with the CISO. What are your thoughts on how we could reorganize, restructure security organizationally to be more streamlined, to be both more secure and use data more effectively? Sure, that's a great, great, great topic. So being in the security domain for at least 15 years now, I've seen a shift in how security teams operate. And it used to be that security teams were very, they took a lot of ownership on um, a lot of domains within the company. So um, they would own the security of uh, you know, the development process. They would own the security of the data systems. They would own the uh, security of the laptops, whatever. Um, and I see a shift that security teams are uh, relinquishing ownership of some of these domains. They're still owning the requirements. They still you know, have to be uh, a team that controls and validates and supervises, but then it's up to the various other teams, the more, you know, the operating teams, the individual teams, the business units to go in and do like tool selection and, and, and so on. So something like what we do at Satori, we mostly sell to data teams um, because they are the owners of the data environment and they have a final say about which tools would be used in the data environment, even for security purposes. So um, in the, specifically with data security, there's a, a new concept, relatively new concept called uh, data stewardship, data ownership, basically. I think it also rhymes a bit with, with data mesh, but um, basically says data has ownership within different teams in the company. Um, um, like marketing, they own marketing data, sales, they own sales data. And if someone needs access to that data, it's up to them to approve that access. Security not necessarily has the, the context to approve such a request, uh, but you know, um, the marketing team, they know, should know what uh, restrictions should apply around the data that they own and should be able to, um, to, uh, to provide an approval or ask like more, uh, relevant questions about why this access is required and what needs to be um, taken care of before that access needs to be approved. So uh, we see this more in bigger, larger enterprises where they have larger teams and they have capabilities of like deploying or assigning ownership over data, um, um, stewardship ownership to different um, business units. But I think that's one of the solutions where you don't have to go and ask like a central security team that doesn't have a way to provide you with a, a meaningful answer, but then you have to go and ask the relevant business team um, and, and they should know. Like if you go ask an engineering team, um, can I get access to, to the source code? I'm from marketing. They would say, well, we kind of know what's inside the source code. Um, why do you need access? Oh, well, maybe we can help you another way or and so on and so on, because they have like ownership. They have a sense of ownership about what they're, um, what they're, um, you know, storing and using. Yeah, and I, I think in general, we just need to get 
Joe and I like to say that ideally every data engineer is a security engineer. And the reason that's so important is that it's often the engineers or the software developers or the business people. It's the domain experts within the company who actually can identify security issues better than anyone else. Like it's very hard to see all the possible attacks on your company or all the possible surface for data leakage from a command and control position in a security organization. But often individual data engineers will say, hey, this Hadoop cluster we're running on-prem, here's a way that someone could attack it and exfiltrate data. Or here's a data set that has sensitive data that's old, no one's paying attention to, we really should do something about this. And that, that's very reminiscent of what you're saying, like just applying more stewardship and giving people a sense of accountability for those things they work on and also rewarding them for caring about security and raising issues with security teams to collaboratively fix them. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you can also add a bit of gamification in, in this process, like if you can find a way to provide a score, um, like security coverage, security poster, something like that. And if you're able to measure that continuously and have teams improve on that, that's a really great way to um, get everyone more involved. Uh, and, you know, they have some tangible outcomes. It's not just something like, okay, we, this system or that process is, is insecure. We, oh, we just bumped our security coverage from 67 to 70. That's great. Uh, we see some impact or we get, maybe we get rewarded for that. Yeah. And so then security's role becomes more leadership and orchestration as opposed to just granting permissions and kind of being this bad guy who always says, no, no, you can't do that. Instead, they're there to enable you and you just Think, think about working together for the success of the company. For sure. Let me, let's, let's switch topics just slightly here. Um, I want to go back to uh, security around the data lake, or specifically let's talk about security in the data lake house, uh, where the data lake house is kind of this meant to be this hybrid of data warehouse structure, plus, you know, the, the freedom of a data lake. What, what challenges and evolution do you see there? So securing data in a, in a data lake or lake house is, uh, is a huge challenge because data has, the data has uh, several manifestations and you have to, uh, historically you had to, there are solutions now, but historically you had to take care of the security of every manifestation. For example, you had your raw layer where you just ingest stuff. Uh, so you have all those files and then maybe you have a, another layer for more processed, sanitized, whatever, organized, um, data. And then you have, um, inside your query tool, you have table definitions for like external table definitions on top of those files. They also need to be secured. If you think about this, <clears throat> you have to use different security models because these are different objects, but they, they are just different manifestations of the same data. So in the, in, the, in the internals of the data lake, in the storage layer, these are files. In the query tool that you use, these are tables. Now, files, you have a one security model for files. Tables, you have a different security model and different uh, capabilities. So for example, um, you know, in files, um, in the storage layer, you can control access to tables. I'm sorry, not tables. You can store access to 
folders and individual files. But in, in, in the query tool, you can control access to tables, you can do dynamic masking, you can do role level security, you can control access by schema or by database, whatever. So historically, that has been very challenging to, to get right. Um, and companies had to grant access to all the different manifestations of the data. You had to get access to the query tool, to the tables, and then you also had to get access to the underlying files because your identity was um, was transferred to the storage layer to you know, get access to, to the actual data. If you look at what Databricks is, uh, is doing now with Unity Catalog, um, they really um, are addressing that problem. Basically, they're saying, forget about the storage layer, um, you know, use an, um, a tried and true proven model for controlling access to the data objects like tables and views. Um, if you also need access directly to files, you can do that through Databricks itself. And you, they basically solve this problem of having to provision access to both the files and, and uh, the, query, the query layer, which, is, uh, which I think is a great thing and it simplifies it. Yeah, that's, I mean, for a long time, honestly, watching this battle between Snowflake and Databricks, I felt like this was Snowflake's key advantage. And that is Snowflake was really good at what we considered, you know, data scientists and ML engineers considered the boring stuff, which is if you were working with big data, you didn't want to worry about security in these details. And yet that was just poisonous in a, a big enterprise. Like there's no way they're going to allow this level of raw access. And so it was really holding Databricks back. And so I'm really glad to see this transition happening because I think finally we'll, we'll realize the promise of the Lakehouse concept as security, metadata, schema management, all these basic things get better and better over time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's kind of interesting if you think about this, um, it all converges into a SQL-like model. Uh, which, is, which is interesting because if I go back to 2011, SQL, who SQL what? Like SQL was uh, almost profanity for, for some people, like with MongoDB and, and so on. Uh, though I was sure SQL was, was dead. But if you look at this now, uh, I think the fact that Databricks adopted um, uh, a SQL-like model for their um, Unity catalog means that Hey, that's really great. the The market is actually standardizing on on something, and you know, without standardization, you cannot build an ecosystem. You cannot build tooling. You cannot, um, you know, it's really hard to uh, make the technology available mainstream and and get to a really a really uh, substantial maturity level. So having that standardization, I think, is great. And I, I think, I believe that <clears throat> there's still room to room for improvement here because um, it's, it's great that, you know, companies are adopting that SQL-like model, but then so many other things in the, in the domain of data security are not standardized. And even worse, they're being implemented differently by different vendors, uh, which is um, really hard at the end of the day for their customers to adopt and make sense out of. 
Like if you look at role-based access control in Snowflake and in Google BigQuery, these are very different things. Uh, same concept, but implemented very differently. Um, it, it makes it hard for data teams who want to use these solutions in conjunction or want to migrate from one to another. They now have to go and rebuild all of their security stuff. Uh, so I get it that some of that is, um, um, you know, be more sticky, but I don't know. Um, something doesn't feel right if you use security for stickiness. Use features, use value. Security should be like table stakes. Uh, provide the best security. You know, make it standard, make it universal, and you know, compete on compete on features, scalability on on real innovation. And I, I mean, in the big data era, in the era of peak Hadoop and where everyone was very focused on data lakes, we, we talked a lot about the challenges of data scale. And I think in this era, it's much more about the challenges of data complexity and data complexity comes in many forms. But one of those forms is just having a lot of systems. And I think in the cloud, that's just the reality now. I think the stat I heard a couple months ago is that like one third of Snowflake customers are also Databricks customers. And I would guess that if you ask the other 70%, most of them are probably running other tools as well, like EMR or something that's not Databricks or running their own Spark. And so we, we have to assume that most companies that are operating at large scale are going to have many different tools and trying to force them into a single tool just makes no sense. So exactly like you're saying, this kind of single pane of glass concept with security, where you have this whole, a lot of complexity, but there's central management and central visibility into security, that totally makes sense to me. Yeah, I think like empire building and trying to address all use cases for all workloads for all audiences um i don't know, i think it's really hard to get right um i'm, I'm not saying it's not it's not possible because you do see you know platforms that are doing that well think companies like microsoft google Apple, like they have platforms, they have a lot of use cases, a lot of workloads for a lot of people. But I don't know if that's uh, necessarily something we want to see in, in the data domain. I think data teams really like to experiment with tools. Like we're engineers at the end of the day, and we like to tinker with new stuff. We like to pick the right tool for the, uh, for the right you know, workload. Um, not necessarily we're big on just one one tool to rule them all um, kind of uh, mentality. Well, the reality is the world just changes too fast, right? And I think in the early 2000s, this disadvantaged a lot of non-tech companies because they were locked into like a Teradata or an Oracle, a very good solution, but then as technology evolved, they had a hard time shifting to do new technologies and opportunities. And so you don't wanna lock yourself in in the same way now because you don't know what exciting developments there will be in another year and three years and five years. You have to be prepared for that evolution to happen very quickly. Yeah, for sure. Think five years ago, um, our stacks right. looked very differently. Five years uh, in, into the future, I can't even imagine what it would look like. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, I, I can try to prognosticate, but it will probably all be nonsense and completely wrong compared to what actually happens. Oh, it's going to be Gen AI graph driven something. <laughs> Well, but that's a perfect example, right? Like, say a year and a half ago, 
who would have seen, I mean, Gen AI was already happening, but who would have predicted that it was going to be this big in 2023? It's just completely exploded. And that requires new data systems and new data sets if you're trying to operate in that domain and new security controls. And one funny thing about Gen AI is that if you look at how they're processing data, there are almost no security controls right now. And that's going to have to change very quickly. We're going to have a problem. We're going to have legal problems. We're going to have user trust problems. We already do in many respects. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely see the, um, you know, I suspect we'll see new regulation coming up around what, what, what does, you know, what makes sense, what usage makes sense when, uh, when you use data for Gen AI, considering, you know, Gen AI has all, all the drawbacks uh, around hallucination, you know, inaccurate information and so on. So let's say I have, I want to, I want to provide my data into a Gen AI system to help users do something. Um, now, let's say health information to help doctors ask the system for questions like, like 70s expert systems on, you know, but without, not a rule-based engine, but a Gen AI-based engine. Um, and I, I want to use health information for that. Uh, I can imagine all sorts of regulation coming up and saying, well, some data is appropriate to be used. Some data is inappropriate to use in certain cases because it has an effect on how physicians are going to make uh, about care, you know, decisions about care, uh, what type of treatment to choose, you know, doing prognosis and so on. Yeah, it's funny. The situation right now very much reminds me of the data lake like seven years ago. And that is just throw it all in there. Don't filter it. Don't process it. Don't pre-process it. Don't do anything to it. Just we're going to run you know, data science and machine learning processes on this. And don't worry about the details of what's in there. And obviously, we've evolved a lot since then. And yeah, very much the same evolution has to happen in the Gen AI training space. Like the idea of training, you're training your data on like, all kinds of hateful content, inaccurate content. I mean, we're going to have to come up with ways to solve these problems for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just imagine what will happen when Gen AI starts watching YouTube uh, and TikTok videos. <laughs> Learning from that. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, um, that's how I found out that I have nanobots in my bloodstream. I mean, it's very important <laughs> information. For sure. <laughs> exactly. We're kind of we're coming close to the end of the hour. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out here? Um, I think I would I would highlight um, I would highlight a few like principles. If if you're someone who's you know worried about data security in your company, or you have you're doing a data modernization project, you're moving into or Databricks or BigQuery or whatever. Um, it's, um, I think you want to keep in mind a couple of things. Uh, first of all, have people know that you have really good monitoring and that you, um, if they do something, make them feel like if they do something stupid, um, there's a good chance of them being, being caught doesn't have to be you know in in act could be like a month later someone's going to to do that and i think you can come up with a lot of um 
interesting and creative ways to make people know um, know know and feel like they're being they're being monitored. Um, second thing is don't make it hard for users to to use your process. Like make the process to get secure access to data the easy the easy way. If you make it the hard way, people are just going to try and, and work around the system. They'll, I don't know, get credentials from someone else. They're going to ask someone. They're going to fill with the system and try to get something else. They're going to, do, they're going to go to another system, whatever. People are resourceful when they don't want to do something. Uh, so make it easy for them. Like make the data, even the sensitive data, very accessible, but have those have the have the process in place that make it super easy. Like build a Slack app so people can just I want this and then someone can approve over Slack, whatever. Make it super easy for them to use your secure process. Um, otherwise, they'll just go they'll just go around it. And remember that in five years you'll probably have something new in your data stack that you don't have today. So try not to get too um, locked into any specific feature from any like specific vendor. Try to you know think about how you can you know ex extend the process to new technologies that you want to adopt in the future. Yeah, that's all really good advice, and I, I appreciate that it's forward-looking advice. Um, I think we don't talk enough about managing technological change in this industry. What happens is every new phase comes along. Everyone jumps on that bandwagon, Hadoop, modern data stack, instead of saying, all right, this is great technology, but like, how do we also manage integrating this technology, but also the next generation? And I think having a very sec clear security posture around that, I mean, it probably should be central and everything else kind of revolve around that given the stakes that we're dealing with. Yep. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think we'll close out there, but uh, where can people find out more about you if they're interested in, in hearing more of your thoughts on security or anything else? Yeah, sure. Um, you can connect connect with me over LinkedIn, uh, Yoav Cohen. You can visit our website, satoricyber.com um, or Yoav Cohen on, on Twitter. Um, happy to chat, happy to continue the conversation, um, um, love talking data. Fabulous. Yeah, this was, I uh, really enjoyed this conversation today. We have lots of good conversations on here, but this one definitely stands out. So we'll, uh, I'll hope awesome. to catch up with you sometime soon on uh, virtual medium or some other medium, like human face to face sure. contact. So yeah, we'd love, we'd love to catch up on, on a future conference. Thanks for having me and, uh, you know, stay safe. Will do. You you as well. And let me know if you're in the U.S. in the near future. Sure. Definitely. Take care, Thanks, everyone. Man. And we'll see you next week.